Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Psalms, chapter 68. Psalms, chapter 68. Thou hast ascended. Are you there? Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Now go over, please, in the New Testament, uh, its parallel verse, which is where Paul is quoting Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. And it says, Wherefore he saith, who saith? Well, the prophet there, the, 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 the author of Psalms saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Amen. Now one more time, please, in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Amen. Praise God. We talked on last Wednesday about a number of different things. I can't even remember everything we've talked about. It's been so much. Praise God. Uh, we talked about the timeline from Wednesday night to Sunday morning. We talked about the seven feasts of Israel and him cutting covenant in his own blood. According to Genesis 15, remember Jesus walked the trail of blood for Abraham. Then he walked the trail of his own blood for me and you. Praise God. That old covenant was, uh, was a covenant. It couldn't fail because Jesus walked it, but it could be broken because animal blood can be broken. So it had to be renewed once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when they would sprinkle animal blood. But when Jesus came, he did it in his own blood, so which, and no sin can ever break that blood. So it's an eternal, perfect, secure covenant. And it never has to be repeated or repaired. And that's why he never has to go in. No per person ever has to sprinkle another drop of blood ever again. Because Jesus, as the high priest, went into the Holy of Holies in heaven like the high priest went in the Holy of Holies on earth on the Day of Atonement. But the Day of Atonement became the day that he rose. He went and he sprinkled his precious holy blood on those instruments and on that mercy seat. And he said, Father, uh, what Abel's blood cried out for justice, my blood cries out for mercy. It's eternally secure. It no, no blood ever has to be shed again. My blood covers it all. My blood removes all the sin. Praise God. He, he did it. He, he completed. The, he ratified that salvation. It's free. It's open to all. Glory to God. So Jesus's blood was placed there. We talked about that. He cut covenant with, with animal blood for the Old Testament saints. He cut covenant with his own blood for all saints, which covered, which meant all the Old Testament saints were now clean because his blood had to wash them or they couldn't go to heaven. And now anybody that from that moment that got saved would be clean, including us. He looked into the future. Remember that, that song Brother Copeland sings, when, I was on the, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Maybe we should sing it right now, Taylor. Maybe me and you can do a duet right now, Taylor. Do you know that song, my brother? When he, no, anyway, let's just move along with the sermon. We don't want the anointing to completely leave, praise God. But when, when he was on the cross, Gloria, he, you were on his mind. I was on his mind. He was thinking about me. You say, that's not possible. There's too, many, there's too many people. Well, he knew us all before the foundation of the world. He was thinking about us. That's why he went there for me. He didn't have to, and he didn't really want to. At one part, he said, God, don't make me do this. But he said, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to choose. Yeah, I'm going to let you choose. Because if I choose, I probably will say this cup of judgment to pass from me. And I'm, how many times would he have been tempted to call upon uh, 12 legions of angels? He could have called upon, he even said, I can call 12 legions of angels and take care of all of you. But how many times he would have been tempted to do that? But if he had done that, Willie, I would be going to hell today. 
Praise God. And just so that they would know that he was almighty God and that they could not take him. I love Jesus. He is so cool, Greg. Just because he wanted them to know that they cannot forcibly take him, that he gives his life as a ransom for many, that they couldn't take him by force. If you read there in, in the Gospels, it says when they came, and it says not to people in the movies, they don't get it right. You see just Judas and a couple guys. There were hundreds of men because the entire security council of the Sanhedrins came. And if you study, if you study Jewish times, there was up to 300 people. Some theologians say more than 300. Some say up to almost 1,000. So they vary. But there were hundreds, plural, guaranteed of people that came to that garden. And I've been to that garden. And it's not very big. And, you, I mean, you, you, you pack in a few hundred people in there, it's pretty packed. And what did Jesus say? The Bible says he stretched his hands out toward them and all, all of them fell down. That wasn't a Benny Hinn service, you know, where he did this. You know, that's people wanting by the power. They want God to touch them. These guys don't want God to touch them. These guys are coming with hatred in their hearts and swords in their hands to take them by force. And Jesus is so cool. He just wanted everybody to know, you're not going to take me. I'm going to come. I'm coming with you. You're not taking me. And just, you think you all these numbers, you got something? Watch this. Boom. He just puts his hands out and the Bible says all of them hit the dirt. Hundreds of people, Greg, slain by the power of God against their will. Against their will. They didn't want to be slain. Jesus was making a point. You don't know who I am. I got, I got thousands of angels at my disposal. I can have any one of you killed instantly at any moment, I say. So don't think you're all that, Mr. Pontius Pilate or Mr. Sanhedrin or Caiaphas. Don't think you're all that. I do this on my own accord. I give my life. You're not taking my life. I'm giving my life. Praise God. So we talked about all that. And then, of course, uh, and then we talked, uh, you know, on Thursday all about what he did in the underworld. And people have been contacting me and saying, Pastor, I didn't really understand what happened between the cross to the throne. Thank you for explaining what he did in hell. A lot of people don't teach this, but it's the truth. Going to hell, being born again in hell. What he did in hell, taking the keys, preaching, going to paradise, becoming the scapegoat, crossing the gulf, seeing, seeing Grandpa Abraham. I was the burning lamp, Abraham. And I've done it now in my own blood for you. Praise God. Because I did it in the animal blood, you could at least be here and not over there where the rich man is. But now that I do it with my own blood, now I can take you out of here and take you up to my father. Praise God. It's his own blood that allowed those people entrance into the heaven of heavens and, and, and allows us entrance. Praise God. And then, of course, on Sunday morning. We talked about how he saw Mary and then he, and then between that one visit and then the other four ladies, he obviously, where he said, I have to ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. And he put his blood down. He put his blood. He sprinkled that blood as a high priest and God gave him a throne and God gave him a title, King of Kings. And God gave him a name, highly exalted above every name that has ever been named. And just like earthly kings, God's not going to uh, do less for his own son. So we know, we know we got a throne. We know we got a title. We know we got a name. And every king has a scepter and every king has a ring. Bible doesn't say it, but I think it's not too far-fetched to believe that God would have honored him with that. But we do know for sure that he had a robe. And every king was marked by a robe, praise God. And you see this, the train of his robe, the outer edge, the hem of his robe filled the temple because those kings would add pieces with every vanquished foe, every vanquished king, their, their train would grow. The longer the train, the greater the king, the greater the, the conquest. Jesus had a train's robe. The train of his robe was so long, hundreds and hundreds of feet long, that it would fill an entire temple. And if you look at the dimension of that temple, it's a big room. 
how could, a, how could a hem that's three inches long fill that room? It filled the room because he had added every single name of every single vanquished, defeated foe. And it made it so long. And it still is a memorial because in the Hebrew, it means that the, the outer edge of a garment set in the temple as a memorial. Just like we see statues as a memorial of the men that fought in the wars. There's a, there's a memorial of that train in that Holy of Holies today. It will be there for eternity with every name listed for us to know that he is, his, his victory is, is utterly un, uncontested. Nobody can contest it, which makes us wonder how on earth Christians die of sickness and disease today when so much has been provided for us. That's why you have to meditate on this stuff. That's why you have to get it onto, into your spirits because if that train is in that temple in heaven, you're also the temple. The, 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 the memorial of that victory is branded and imprinted upon your spirit in your temple, in your spirit, if you look to it. And if you just get fed up with the devil a little bit and say, no, no, I'm done with you. You stop doing that. You stop doing that nonsense. You have no right to put on me what Jesus took because your name is in that train and that train is in my spirit and I'm not yielding to you, devil. You hear me? I will not bow to you. I forbid you on my property. Get off my body. Now, if you'll do that, you'll be healed of stuff that you're struggling with. Really, but Christians aren't healed because either they don't know about it or if they do, they just, they just, they put up with it. Praise God. Anyway, can I keep going with you now? Now, where did I ask you to turn to back to Ephesians chapter four? Did I not? Ephesians chapter four. Did I ask you that? Maybe I didn't. Ephesians chapter four and verse this is what six, Psalm 68, 18 says, but we're looking at it now. I think I already read it. Let's read it again. Ephesians chapter four and verse eight. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now from the uh, Amplified Classic, wherefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He led a train of vanquished foes and he bestowed gifts on men. Led a train, you get the train. The train is not the train, the subway train. The train is the train, the hem of the robe. He led, he led. Where, where is it? It's behind him because the robe goes behind you. He led a train of vanquished phones, not demons in heaven, but their names engraved into that thing. So we talked about that, praise God. Now, I, so I just, I want you to know when Jesus, uh, when he put his blood on there in the Holy of Holies, he received his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He received his name above all names. He received his throne. He received his robe. We know those things through scripture. I can't prove the, the scepter or the ring, but every, every king in the natural does. So whether he did or not, we don't know. But we know these things because we have scripture for it. Uh, this is all victory. There's no defeat in any of that. Do you understand? There's no defeat in any of those symbols and any of those actions that he took. Now he got, does something else that again, if you don't really study the Bible carefully, it would be lost to the casual eye. And most Christians have a casual eye because they don't take the time to delve and to get that nugget that's under the ground, so to speak. But Jesus didn't just sit on that throne and that robe filled the temple. That's what Isaiah saw in the future. He saw, how do we know that it was the future? Because Jesus wasn't, he hadn't conquered all those things at the time Isaiah was alive. He was a king at the time Isaiah was alive, but he wasn't king of kings. Do you understand? Because the devil is a king. Right? And those fallen angels are like princes. He, they're like lords. He hadn't defeated the king, Satan, and all the lords of Satan, those fallen spirits and fallen angels and demons. He hadn't defeated that at the time Isaiah saw it. He had to come to earth and die on that cross and go to hell and take the keys. And that, that meant he had won. So for the robe to fill the temple had to be post-resurrection. It couldn't be 
prior to resurrection because he wasn't the conquering king until he put his blood and he said, Father, the greatness of your plan is now done. Then he becomes king of kings and lord of lords. Then he is now the, con the king that has conquered all. He was a king before, but now he's conquered all because of his own blood. You see, his blood had to be shed or he wouldn't have conquered all. So we know what Isaiah saw with that train filling the devil had to be post-resurrection. So he was looking into Nisan 17, Easter Sunday morning, hundreds and thousands of years, well, not thousands, but hundreds of years into the future when Isaiah saw the most fortunate man alive, he saw the king of glory sitting with his beautiful robe. My God, what a, what a privilege. But did you know he didn't just sit on that throne and he didn't just have that train of that robe fill that temple? The Bible talks about him doing something else on that Easter Sunday morning. And it talks about him having a heavenly procession. And I'll show you through scripture here and, and, and prove that to you. After he had sat down in total victory, after his robe had filled the temple, he, what did the Bible say? He led a train of vanquished foes. But he didn't just do that by sitting on the throne. He led a train of vanquished foes by going on a triumphal procession through the streets of heaven. Just as a conquering king, when he conquers and vanquishes another king, if you study history, they always take that king and shame them. And they usually parade them around naked. Typically, it was naked. And they would parade them around the streets. The king, the conquering king, would parade them around, usually naked, as a great shame and a sign. Listen now, you're paying attention? That he had divested them of their authority. What does divest mean? A vesture is a garment. To divest means to take a garment away. The, the conquering king would take not only the robe, but all the garments of that vanquished king and strip him naked as a great shame to him. As a, to show him he's utterly vanquished. He's got nothing, no authority left. Not only does he not have a robe, but doesn't even have garments on. And he would parade him around to say, look what I've done. He tried to stop me, but I have completely vanquished him and humiliated him. So that was what natural kings would do. And in a, in a sense, of course, Satan's in, he's not in heaven. God won't allow Satan in heaven. But what I'm saying, and in a sense, Jesus did that same action on the streets of heaven on Easter Sunday morning. Because a king always parades around the vanquished foe. That's why it says he led a train of vanquished foes because what he is saying is, look what I have done. Look how I have conquered. Look at their names, boys. Angels, look at their names. Father, look at their names. Old Testament saints, look at their names. Read the names in my robe. They are vanquished foes. And I parade them around heaven's streets. I'm telling you, that's what he did. That's what a natural king would do, but I've got scripture to prove to you that's what he did. And it really was what we would call a victory lap. If you want to look at it from natural things. You know, Usain Bolt, he goes and he just, why do they even run against him? What's the point? Why do they even enter the race, Taylor? And you see them, they're all trying so hard. And he's looking around like, he, like this, what are you doing? And he just destroys them. I mean, what glory is, would you see men that, that are skillful like that? It's just glorious. And then, of course, you know, he's a little bit arrogant. You know, he does all that. And he does kisses everything. And he takes his shoes off, whatever. But what does he do? They always run around that thing once with their flag. Because they're saying, hey, look what I've done for my country. I'm the best. I'm the goat. Greatest of all time. So goat represents what goat stands for. I'm the greatest of all time. And, and really, it's like a victory lap. Well, Jesus, after he just put his blood down, you think this is somber? Do you think heaven is a quiet place at that moment? Can you imagine the shout as he walked into the, into the, through the pearly gates? 
Can you imagine the angels bowing before him and shouting and celebrating him as he sprinkles blood, his own blood to ratify salvation and he's given that robe with that massive train and he sits down in the Holy of Holies and it feels the death. I mean, there was great celebration and Jesus, the Bible tells us that he went on a procession. It would make sense after you've sat down, you don't want to stay there for much longer as everybody's screaming. He would have stood up and he would have walked around and high-fived people, hugged people. He would have shouted himself and they're shouting. As he walks around, look boys, look behind me. All that stuff, I've overcome it. They're all vanquished. Oh, I wish the people on earth would know how the, the salvation that I've given them is utterly complete. And he went around like a victory lap, so to speak, talking and, and rejoicing and the people praising and rejoicing and the angels singing. The Bible says it. It actually happened. It was like a victory lap. And this produced an outcry of joy in heaven. Now, the reverse that shows us this is the book of Colossians chapter 2. So can you turn there with me? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Colossians chapter 2. And verse 15, God disarmed, I'm reading Amplified Classic, disarmed the principalities and powers that were ranged against us and made a bold display and a public example of them in triumphing over them in him and in it the cross. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. And it says here in verse 15, uh, in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross, publicly, publicly. Shame them publicly. It's not talking about earth. It's talking about heaven. Do you understand? Because on earth, nobody knew really what had happened yet. <laughs> Even the disciples didn't believe he had risen. So it wasn't really a public demonstration on the earth yet. But it was in heaven. Now let me read it again from the King James. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly. Triumph, where was the openly? What well, wasn't on the earth. Do you understand? Because he's not on the earth anymore. He raises up, he comes, he gets his buddy, goes. He hasn't, there is no record in scripture of them making a public declaration or example of them on the earth in, in, and in front of other people. Now, I'm sure in his preaching, when he came back in those number of days he was appearing, he would have been saying certain things along these lines. But, but this here, uh, making a show of them openly is not referring to this realm. It's referring to the heavenly realm. Triumphing over them in it, which is the cross. Now, if you break this down, you'll see some wonderful things, okay? But you've got to look at it. The English is very limited in certain verses, and it really does not express the true, uh, what's really happening here. So you have to look at it from the original Greek. He spoiled principalities. Another translation says he put to naught or destroyed or paralyzed his enemies. Now that word spoiled is where we get the word to strip off or divest wholly of clothing. Holy of clothing which means to strip naked, to spoil somebody. You know, parents say, oh, I spoil my kids. That's a different kind of spoil. Right. To spoil an enemy means you completely strip them naked. It's the same emphasis the Greek theologians tell us. It's the same understanding of that word as natural kings would strip off a king naked. It's the same idea. It means to divest wholly of clothing or to strip naked. That's the word spoiled. He spoiled principalities. The king's robe, 
Represented what? His conquest, authority, and victory. And a divestment of a robe or clothing, nakedness, in other words, represents what? Utter defeat. Correct? So Jesus took their authority away by stripping them, those principalities and powers, those dead devil himself. He stripped them. He spoiled principalities. That includes the devil, Satan himself. He stripped them wholly of their garments of authority or of their robes of authority. Do you understand? Here is literally, he took their robes, he took their authority because he had overcome them. Now, uh, here is a symbol. I'm not saying it happened literally, but here is a symbol right here that he added if he stripped them of their robes. Here is a symbol that you can see he added their robes to his train. It doesn't say he did that. But what I'm saying is when you spoil a king after vanquishing him, if you study history, they wouldn't just take the robe, but they'd cut that piece off and add it to their train. So here's another symbolic example that Jesus took their authority, took their robes, and added it to his as a record of his victory. Now, I'm not saying he literally physically did that, but we do know that there's some kind of long train. I'm not saying it's, it's full of demonic garments, do you understand? But it's at least a record, a written record of his victory over them, like the person Persians would do. Persians said, you're not even, your cloth is so inferior to our standards. We don't even want your kingly robe. You're too cheap. We're going to do our own high, high quality stuff. And we're going to, we're going to sew a record, a written record. We don't even want your, your king's robe. The best you've got doesn't even, isn't even worthy to touch our king. And that's, I think, kind of what Jesus, his attitude, the best you got, devil, is not even worthy to touch me. But what I will do is take gold thread and write your name that I whipped your butt. I whooped you. Praise God. So this symbolizes. Now, he made a show of them openly. Now, what is that word? So that's what spoiled means. Spoiled means what I've just read. Now, what is the word, what is the phrase, a show of them openly mean? It means, now watch now, to boldly in loud proclamation exhibit in public as a public specimen or example. Public. It keeps saying public. A, a show of them openly is all about public. He's making an example of them, really mocking them publicly. Well, that didn't happen on the earth. Where do you think it happened? It happened on the streets of glory while he leads a train of vanquished foes. Praise God. Now the phrase triumphing over them in it. This means in the Greek, this is what it means exactly from the original Greek, an acclamatory procession with noisy singing and clamor. To triumph, that word triumph, over the enemy in the blood of his cross. To triumph over them is not just the simple way we think, well, of course Jesus triumphed. It doesn't mean that. It means a procession. It means a triumphant procession. Just like if somebody has won something and there's a procession, you know what I'm saying? You know, when, when, when the president does, you know, gets in office and they go, you go, you know, they go in a procession and everybody's lining the streets and they're singing and whatever. And that's a triumphant procession. That word triumph does not just mean triumph simply from the, from the word that we understand triumph meaning victory. It means an acclamatory. That means to acclaim. That means an honor. You know, when you acclaim somebody, you show them honor and reverence. An acclamatory procession. I love it. With noisy singing. In other words, not quiet. And clamor. So what did he do? He spoiled and stripped them, made an open show, a public example and spectacle of them. Where? In heaven. Praise God. And for the devils in hell to see. 
and made a show of them openly, publicly, and triumphed over them in it by having an acclamatory, loud, noisy procession of utter victory and joy. Where was that procession? It wasn't on the earth. That procession was after he sat down. Remember, he had to sit, Greg, because a king that doesn't sit has not accomplished, has not been established. He had to sit down at the right hand of God the Father in his robe with that train filling the temple. It is finally done. I am seated. It speaks of authority being completed. I am seated, Father. Can you imagine the look of love between the two? You were lost to me, son, but I raised you up. I wasn't going to leave you in hell, but you had to go there so Greg wouldn't have to go there. You had to go there so Craig wouldn't have to go there. But now you're back, praise God, King of kings and Lord of lords, with a throne and with a robe and every name of vanquished foe written in it. And it's filling the temple, son. Now go have some fun. Go have some fun. And he, I'm telling you, That's what it says. He triumphed over them. He had an acclamatory procession of great joy and noisy singing and clamor. Where? In heaven. He stood up and started walking the streets of glory and every Old Testament saint is hollering and every angel is screaming and there is dancing. I mean, it would almost look like a drunken brawl. Oh, how could you say that, Pastor Craig? Well, I can say that because of my next statement. The Greek has a certain phraseology. Now, the authors, the, 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 the many Greek theologians have written commentaries on this verse. One of the main ones, and many of them, I've read many of them, but one of the main ones said this about this. This type of noisy, clamorous, almost out of control party that was happening on the streets of heaven when Jesus is walking and leading captivity captive. He's leading his enemies as his vanquished foes. He's leading a train of vanquished foes. There is such an uproar and an outcry in heaven, if you study it and if you just read the commentaries, the way it's worded in Greek is very unique and it's not just as simple, you know, a couple like, you know, the party things. It, it's not like that. The way it's worded is it, it is so beyond comprehension, the joy and the outcry of, of rejoicing that the only way that we can understand how that looked and felt in real life is the Greek theologians have to compare it to something, Sandy, that we can fathom, okay? Because it's not possible to fathom that kind of a party. So they had to, they picked, uh, they picked a, a party that happened on the earth that was the most wild party that existed all year. Now, of course, wild parties usually don't please God. Now, this party was filled with drunkenness, unbridled sex, orgies, everything and everything and anything is happening all at once in the city of Ephesus. I mean, it is, Ephesus was known for being a very filthy, sexually filthy city. And so uh, he's writing this to the Ephesian church. And so he's expressing in the original Greek, I'm trying to explain to you what it was like when Jesus triumphed. 
And the only way I can explain to you the unrestrained party in heaven is to explain a party that you have in your city once a year. Because that's the only thing that I can compare it to. Of course, though, in heaven, there's nothing wrong going on, whereas in earth, all it is is debauchery and sin. But he's using that as an example to say, you know how that, like, you know, I don't know, do we have anything in our life that's like that? I mean, Caravan is not really that bad, is it? I don't know. I don't know really any parties. Uh, is there anything that goes on that is just completely unrestrained in Toronto? Mardi Gras? Mardi Gras would be a good example. You know, just, compl just crazy wildness. Now, the devil gets a hold of people and all bad things happen. But in heaven, there's no devil. So there is unrestrained wildness, but, but in the Holy Ghost. It's like having a Holy Ghost service with Dr. Dufresne on Red Bull times 100 and lasting the entire day and Jesus himself being present. You talk about running. We're not talking about just running around. I mean, this is, this is extreme joy that has happened here. And this is what they say. In the Greek, this phraseology, this triumphing over them in it, this acclimatory procession with noisy singing and clamor. In the Greek, this phraseology is equated to, now I'm quoting now from the Greek theologian, ritual madness and religious ecstasy of unrestrained consumption of wine and drunkenness in the worship of Dionysus or Bacchus, the Greek god of the grape harvest, who was the son of Zeus. Unritual madness. They're acting like they're crazy. They're so out of their mind. Religious ecstasy of unrestrained consumption of wine and drunkenness. Unrestrained consumption. He's trying to say, you, you, know, you know that Dionysus wine festival that you celebrate? You know how crazy that is? It was like that times 10 in heaven, but without any sin. It was absolute pandemonium joy. You've never seen a party like that. Why? They are celebrating Jesus triumphing over every single name. And that deserved the greatest party, Bev, that's ever happened. His great victory deserved the greatest party. Anything less would have insulted the king. I'm telling you something about it. Now, I have written a, a little quote that I will take credit for because I looked at all the Greek words and I added them together. And then if I didn't really understand a word, I looked it up. For example, the word clamor means vehement shouting. So, that, so, I, so if I didn't quite get a word, I looked it up and then I added the, the, the definition from Webster's and I've created my own, my own summary, which I will be paid royalties for, <laughs> my own summary, and I want you to put that up on the screen. This is what happened Easter Sunday morning in heaven. And this is all the Greek words put together. A public celebration of intense rejoicing, noisy singing, and vehement shouting expressed through an acclamatory procession where Jesus boldly and loudly in an outspoken proclamation marked by ecstasy and unrestrained joy made a public and grand spectacle of the devil's stripped authority, utter defeat, and eternal vanquishment. That is what all the Greek words, you put them all together from this one, with this one verse. This one verse, simple verse. He spoke principalities, making a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You take all the Greek words that are associated with those three sentences and you get, this is what happened in heaven. Jesus knows nothing but victory. He just sat down and put his blood. The Father's pleased. Salvation is secure. 
And now he goes in the streets leading a train of vanquished foes and they are screaming. They are dancing and shouting. They can't believe it. Jesus has won. There was a public celebration of intense rejoicing, noisy singing, and vehement shouting expressed through an acclamatory procession where Jesus boldly, Jesus was preaching, Jesus was preaching loudly in an unspoken proclamation marked by ecstasy and unrestrained joy made a public and grand spectacle of the devil's stripped authority, his utter defeat and his eternal vanquishment. Jesus, Sandy, was walking the streets of glory. I don't know what he was saying, but it was something probably like, I won! I did it! The devil has been defeated forever, boys, forever! Not just for a while, but forever! And those angels are freaking out. And Abraham lost all his dignity and started to dance. My God, Greg, I'm telling you. See, heaven was victory. In heaven that morning was the greatest party that has ever existed. The blood was put. The king sat down. The robe was granted and an acclamatory procession ensued with the greatest party that heaven has ever heard or seen. Praise God. I want you to remember that has not changed for you. That's not a fairy tale. I don't know, somewhere back there, I don't know, they shouted about something. I don't know, I wasn't really paying attention while pastor was preaching. But you know, I just got this pain in my foot and it's just really bothering me. Like I'm bummed out, man. I guess Jesus don't love me. I guess healing don't work. You see, people, I can't make you believe it. I'm just telling you that Jesus got nothing but victory. Easter morning was nothing but victory. Not just the blood, not just sitting down, getting a name and a title, but that procession was nothing but pure, unadulterated victory. And he did it and he proclaimed it for us. Praise God. Then, remember this now, he came as a lamb, Taylor, but he ain't coming back as no lamb. He died as a lamb. Now he comes back as a lion. Devil, you better watch out. Well, he's already been defeated. But Jesus ain't playing no games when he comes back. Jesus is not playing any games when he comes back. He's coming back to do business. Now, I want you to know that after that acclimatory procession or whatever, now, I, I can't prove that to you. He could have come down and seen Mary before the party. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, the Bible doesn't say. But we do know that this, he came, he went to heaven after Mary Magdalene, and he had to put his blood down. We know he did that at least because he couldn't let them touch him until he had done that and the rest of them touched him. Okay, so we know that happened. Whether he went, he might have just been going back and forth with frequent fire miles. He might have just been going back and forth. Where, he, where he, he went down, talked to the ladies, went back up, had the party, then came back down, talked to the men at Emmaus, then went back up, had another party, then came back down, talked to the damn disciples. They're all crying and depressed, and he goes back up. I can't stay around you guys. You're depressing me. He goes back up for more of the party. I don't know. I don't know what the order was, but I do know that he had to put his blood on that mercy seat or nobody could touch him. And I do know that he had to do that because then they did touch him. And I know that on this procession, this happened on Easter Sunday morning because he triumphed when he put the blood down. So at some point that day in heaven, there was a great party. But also at some point that day, he came back and remember he saw four groups of people. The first one was before he ascended, which was who? Mary Magdalene. She got the best of the best. She got a special treat because she was the hungriest and got up before dark. The other ones were sleeping. They missed it. 
Praise God. He's, they still got something, but she got the best. Now, what was the second group of people? For those of you that are writing notes, that's John chapter 20, 1 to 18. Now, the second group of people, again, if you're writing notes, is Matthew 28, 1 to 10, and Luke 24, 1 to 12. He appeared to the four women. That's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna, four of them that are listed. There might have been more, but there's four listed. And that's when he says, and I like this, the first thing he says to them as he sees them, he says, all hail. Now that doesn't just mean what I thought it meant is all hail the king, like bow before me. It doesn't, it means it's a word of incitement, incite, to incite somebody, to motivate them aggressively. It's a word of an incitement for joy. And it literally means, the Greek word means rejoice. That's what he did when he saw them. When you say all hail like that, it means rejoice. Why did he say that? Because he just come from the biggest party of the universe and he's coming and they're all crying. <laughs> rejoice, stop it, stop it, rejoice. I have overcome, hug me, come here, you weirdos, come here. It's over. You don't have to be really sad no more. I'm alive and I'm alive forevermore. He sees the four ladies. Then a little bit later, he goes and there's two disciples, not the original 11, but two disciples. I say 11 because Judas is dead. He's in hell. But uh, there's, two, there's two disciples on the way to a little place called Emmaus. It's about 60 furlongs from Jerusalem. It's not far. A little town, tiny town. And he talks to them. They don't know who he is. And he's talking to them about the word. And then he sits down. And then when he breaks the bread and blesses it, the way that he did it obviously was very significant to the way Jesus did it. He's obviously got a certain way of doing it because it says when he broke the bread and blessed it, they recognized him as Jesus. And then what did he do? Jesus is so cool, he wants to freak people out, man. He just vanished into thin air. No notice, just disappeared. I like it. I like it. I like it. Then they run to the 11, tell them what happened. And then the fourth group of people is Jesus shows up in the midst of them. It's those two plus the 11, and it says there were others. We don't know how many there were. There could have been 100. Who knows? But they're in hiding. And he says to them, I'm here. Touch me, feel me, I'm here. And then he breathes on them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. The same day, Greg, that the blood allowed men to be saved. The first 11 got saved. And more. It could have been, well, it probably was more, because I'm sure those two disciples got saved too. But he, he, he breathed on them. You, you think it's nice to get Benny Hinn. <laughs> you think that's awesome. And this powerful anointing. He's, he's breathed on me. I've gone down hard. I didn't even want to go down. But I'm telling you, that anointing is real. There's no more Benny Hinn in a white suit. This is Jesus, brother, Jesus. And this is not just you being slammed down to get blessed. This is you getting born again by the breath of Jesus himself. I mean, that, it's not right that they get that and I didn't. Lorraine, it ain't right that Isaiah saw it and here I am. It's just not right. It's not fair. I'm going to have words, Lord, when I get to heaven. He breathed on them, four groups, Mary, the four women, the two men of Martimaeus, and then the 11 or plus disciples, four groups. You know that there's four groups that he's going to see when he comes back the next time? That was him coming back to the earth. Now he's gone, right? Now he visits from time to time and he appears to people. But the next time he comes, he doesn't come to the earth in the rapture. He comes above the earth in the clouds and says, hey, Andrea, come on, girl. That's what he says. It's not a verse for that, Andrea, come on, girl, but it's going to be something like that. It's a blast and he shouts. He shouts, the Bible says. And the, and the archangel blasts, but he doesn't come to the earth. He's in, he's in the clouds and we join him. The next time he comes to the earth, 
like he did on that resurrection day when he, when he walks the earth in that capacity, is going to be on the second coming, after the, after the seven years tribulation, after the marriage supper, when he comes on white horses. Yeah. You better learn, you better practice, darling, because Hortense, you're going to be on a white horse. Yours might be gray, I don't know. But it's going to be a horse, okay? <laughs> Yours will be extra white, bleached, bleached white, praise God. Uh, and, and, and don't get all upset about the color because Jesus obviously doesn't have a problem with color. He didn't say black horses or gray horses or brown horses. He said white horses. Don't get upset with that. I didn't make that up. Jesus made that up. Okay, I can see some of you saying, oh God, why is it? I, I want a brown horse. Just, just let Jesus pick your horse for you. He says, we're coming back on white horses, glistening white horses. Amen. And he comes and he goes to four places. Do you know the places he goes? Come on, theologians. Do you know the places he goes? Oh God. Well, one place he comes to Beverly. You all don't know your Bibles very well? Come on now. Where does he go, Taylor? He comes to Armageddon because he has to stop the war. Otherwise, they'll all be destroyed. And that's when the Antichrist looks at him and he looks right back. And the glory of his countenance melts his skin off his flesh. I would say he is vaporized by the glory that comes in the sword that comes out of his mouth. All that thing, all his hubbub and all his huffing and puffing and just one look at Jesus and he's destroyed. Yeah. It's like a house of cards. Yeah. They build all this thing singing, they're so great and then just Jesus and it's gone. Yeah. That's how powerful Jesus is. They're flies against a hurricane. Yeah. That's all they are, Greg. All their pomp and all their darkness is nothing compared to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We got to keep it in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. He, comes to, he comes there and then he also goes to Petra. Petra is where the Jews flee into Jordan and they're, and they're hiding because of the Holocaust that the Antichrist has ensued. He comes to Petra and he helps them and he, and he appears to them. And then, of course, he also comes to another place in Syria called Basra and he appears there. And then, he, I'm not saying this is in order, but he comes to the Mount of Olives. We've stood there, Taylor. He comes and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and then it's really cool, Greg, because there's something called the Golden Gate. Or the eastern gate. We saw it, Taylor, when we looked down over that valley. Do you remember? Uh, that gate is sealed. You can see that it's sealed. And this is the, what they called the beautiful gate. Remember, the, our man was begging arms at the beautiful gate, and Peter lifted him up, and his feet and ankle bones received strength. That's the eastern gate. It's called the eastern gate, the golden gate, the beautiful gate, or the king's gate. That is the gate where every king of Israel has walked through. And that's the gate Jesus was on the donkey when they put the, the things down and they said, Hosanna in the high. He came as, as a lamb, but he came through the eastern gate. That's where they loved him. And then they're very fickle. The next day they hate him. They want to kill him. Okay, that's humanity for you. Now, Jesus, when he comes the next time, he comes and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and he comes through that same gate. It is the closest gate to the to the temple mount where the temple is and the Holy of Holies is. It's the closest access point to the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where Jesus is going to, his throne is going to be. That's where the Antichrist who wants a throne so bad. Satan wants the throne so bad. Satan goes to heaven mid-trib, tries to storm. We're having dinner. Jesus don't even, don't disrupt my dinner. He's the We'll talk about an insult. Jesus don't even stand up to fight the devil. He just says, Michael, deal with him. I'm having lunch with Greg. I'm serious. The angels push him out. People say the devil knows his time is short. That's not true. 
If you study the Bible, he does not realize the first time Satan realizes his time is short is after he's rejected from heaven when he tried to storm it three and a half years into the tribulation. Then it says he comes to earth in a rage and a fury for he knoweth his time is short. The, everything he's been gearing up all these years is to try to take God's throne. And Jesus don't even stand up. Michael, deal with that fool. Boys, don't worry about it. Just keep eating your food. This is a big, this is a big coup that's trying to happen in heaven while you're there. The angels are going to deal with it. We're not even going to be disrupt, disrupted from our dinner with Jesus. I'm serious. I don't make somebody look at me like, just study your Bible. It's in your Bible. It's all there. Then he comes down. He's so angry, Arrow, because he can't have that throne. That's when he possesses the Antichrist as a human being. He's an angel. Angels can't possess people. Demons can. But an angel, an angel has only possessed a human being twice in history. Satan himself as an angel came into Judas and possessed his body as the man who betrayed Jesus. And he will come into the body of the Antichrist, an angel possessing a human being. And that happens when he knows his time is short because he's going to have a throne one way or the other. And he can't have the one he wants so he possesses the Antichrist, and then the Antichrist sits down in the Holy of Holies, Greg, on the throne of the Messiah, and then takes a pig and slaughters the pig and puts pig blood in the Holy of Holies, which is the highest insult you can possibly give to a Jew. And that's when they realize, oh my goodness, we thought he was our friend. He is here. He is evil. And then he gets up off that throne. It's called the abomination of desolation. And then he slaughters the Jews wholesale, makes it look like Hitler did like nothing. And that's why they run to Petra. He is slaughtering them by the hundreds of thousands. I'm telling you, this is, this is real and it's going to happen. It's in the Bible. Praise God. So Jesus comes back on the Mount of Olives and he is going to go through that eastern gate because he is the only one worthy to sit on that throne. Not no antichrist and not no Satan. The only one worthy for the heavenly throne and the mirror image in the earthly tabernacle, which is the earthly throne in the Holy of Holies, is the Lord Jesus himself. And when he tabernacles for the thousand-year reign of Christ, that's where his seat's going to be, Lorraine. He's going to be sitting in the Holy of Holies on his throne. And he'll be preaching to the whole world via satellite from his throne. And the devil wants to take that throne. And that's why the Antichrist sits down. But of course, then, you know, the Jews reject him. And then all the other stuff happens. All the, all the vials and the trumpets and all the stuff is poured out. There's great destruction. And then Armageddon. And if Jesus don't come back, there's not going to be anything left. That Jesus comes back to these places, but when he comes to the Mount of Olives, I love this, he puts his feet down and he goes down to that eastern gate, brother, because he ain't coming as no lamb. Remember, he went through there as a meek man and they said, Hosanna, now he's coming through there as a lion. Amen. Get out of my way. I'm going to my throne. Amen. But there's a dude that we got to talk about just for a second who's really stupid. His name is Suleiman the Magnificent, but he's obviously not that magnificent in my books. Suleiman the Magnificent was the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, the Turks or the Muslims, in 1540 to 1541. He sealed the Eastern Gate of the Temple, known as the Golden Gate, the Beautiful Gate or the King's Gate, because he knew Jewish tradition stated that the Jewish Messiah has been prophesied to come through the Eastern Gate victorious. So this Muslim said, I'm going to stop him. This is true, this history. And you can still see it. It's sealed today. It was sealed in 1541 by Suleiman the Non-Magnificent. You know what he did, Greg? He put 16 feet of concrete. 
and sealed it 16 feet of concrete and sealed it to this day. Now, technically, the real gate Jesus walked through is very close to the gate that we see today, but it's actually under the ground because all the excavated stuff, you have to look down because with time, everything's kind of been built up. So the eastern gate is below, a little bit to the side, but below, but it's basically in the same place. So where you see that eastern gate, it is very similar to the actual gate Jesus walked in. And, and so not only did he do that, then he got real smart, and he said, uh, he said I'm going to put uh, uh, Muslim tombs and graves in front of the eastern gate because Muslims believe that it's like kryptonite. If you put a Muslim grave there, Jews cannot touch Muslim graves. It makes them unclean. So he says, I'm going to seal it with 16 feet of concrete, and I'm going to put graves all in front of it with high-ranking Muslims. And now when that Jewish Messiah comes, he's going to be too afraid to touch those graves because a Jew can't touch a Muslim grave. And there's 16 feet of concrete, and he's not going to be able to get in. Let me tell you something, Suleiman the Magnificent. Those long Galilean legs are going to stride down the Mount of Olives and he is going to put his heel into those graves unafraid. And the power of God and the angels are going to bust through that 16 feet of concrete like it's fluff. And he is going to walk through that gate and he's going to turn to the left and he's going to ascend his throne in the Holy of Holies. And he's going to sit down. <laughs> You see, there's nothing but victory with Jesus. Nothing but victory. Nothing but victory when he went to heaven. Nothing but victory in the procession of heaven. Nothing but victory when he comes back. Nothing but victory. If your life doesn't smell of victory, it smells something wrong. Because Jesus is nothing but victory. Can I read you one more verse? It's 906, but you got used to long preaching the, the anointing of Brother Copeland has come upon me to abide. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm almost done. Just Easter, just Easter. Sunday we'll be back to nice 45 minutes, three psalms, four hymns, and we're out. Praise God. Uh, but just Easter though, but I'm almost done. Now, First Samuel, have a look here because this just flips me out a little bit. Now, I'm not, what I'm about to say is not doctrine, okay? What I'm about to say is my opinion, but it's pretty darn good if you ask me. And I bet you anything, Taylor, I'm right. And there are a whole bunch of theologians far smarter than me that agree with me. Well, I mean, I agree with them because they don't know who I am. But what they have read, I agree. What they have written, I agree with. Praise God. Now, 1 Samuel, chapter, see, you're having so much fun. You don't want to leave. You just, just keep telling that thought to go. You don't want to leave. 1 Samuel 17, 54. Are you ready for this one? This blessed my socks off. And I'm talking leading Greek theologians of the day believe this. But you can't prove it from the Bible. But... It's just opinion, but I, it's so good, i got to tell you. I don't normally preach opinions, but i got to tell you because it's just too good. 1 Samuel 17, 50, uh, 54. Well, let's look at 52. Well, let's look at 51. Well, let's look at 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over, stood upon the Philistine, took his own sword, that's a great insult, and drew it out of his sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until you come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell by, down by the way to Shariim, even unto Gath and Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and spoiled their tents. 
Now watch 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. <laughs> David takes the head, the severed head. You know how to get ahead in life? <laughs> if you want to get ahead in life. David knew how to get ahead in life. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, sorry. Uh, David took the severed head of a giant. He didn't take it to his tent. He took his armor and a sword. Later, the sword went to the, the, the priest at Nob for safekeeping. And then when he was running from Saul, they gave the sword back to him. But he took the armor and sword to his tent, and he takes the head to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a little bit trek. We've been there, Taylor. From where we stood there in the Valley of Elah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a distance. It's quite a walk. I mean, if you're walking, it's a bit of a distance. He carried that head. And he goes all the way to Jerusalem. Now, here's the curious thing. Jerusalem is not founded at this point by by the Israelites. It's by the Jebusites. The Jerusalem is a stronghold of the Jebusites. They are anti-Israel. They are enemies of Israel. And if you study the Bible, you'll see that when seven and a half years of Hebron rule for David ended, the first seven and a half years, he has to now transition to Jerusalem. That's when he brings the Ark of the Covenant and he dances before the Lord and all that stuff. That was seven and a half years of Hebron, and then he started Jerusalem. He only started Jerusalem after Hebron. If you study the Bible, on the seventh year of Hebron, he takes a team to Jerusalem, and he says, whoever goes and goes through the, the aqueduct, and they're hiding like little ninjas, and they're going up and he said whoever goes and, and opens the door opens the gate from the inside it's like an encourage like a co covert operation you know I'll, I'll reward you and one of his mighty men did it and they go in and they kill the Jebusites and they take over Jerusalem which is Mount Moriah they take over it and that becomes his headquarters but that didn't happen until after Hebron which was seven and a half years after he started to reign he started to reign at 30 years old he was 37, almost 38 when he took Jerusalem. But he killed Goliath. Some say 16, others say 17, others say 18, other theologians say 19. But all theologians agree on one thing. He was between 16 and 19. He was not over 19. And he was not earlier than 16, but none of them can agree exactly when it happened. So even if you take the oldest possible date at 19, it was 18 years before he took Jerusalem. And if he did it at 16, it would have been... 21 years before he took Jerusalem. In other words, there's a long period of time from the time he decapitated Goliath until he's taking Jerusalem. So why would he take the head to Jerusalem? Because he doesn't own it. Why would he do that? It's an obscure scripture. Why would he take a head which is going to rot? I don't mean to be vulgar, but you know what I mean? It's going to smell. That's why he didn't take it to it. He didn't smell that guy. But why would he take it to Jerusalem? He doesn't own Jerusalem. He won't own it for 18 more years. Theologians believe this, and I can tend to agree with them, but you can't prove it. That there was, a, there was an escarpment in Jerusalem that I have stood and looked at with Taylor. And it's got, it looks like a skull. And it is called the place of the skull, which is called Golgotha. And Jesus, the Bible says, was crucified at Golgotha. Not on the hill like you see in all the pictures. It was actually on the road where the Romans wanted everybody tra traveling by to see the spectacle out of a fear tactic to get them not to rebel. Yeah. But it was in front of, right now it's a train station, where Jesus' blood spilled onto the ground is a train station today. It's right there in front of the gate, not the eastern gate, a different gate, and right directly opposite you see that place of the skull. 
And that's why they took him to that, that gate, because that's where the skull was. Now, theologians believe, I can't prove it, but you can disprove it. I just think it's pretty cool. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But theologians, many of them believe that the reason why Golgotha is called Golgotha, the place of the skull, is because it is a compound word of Golgotha, which is Goliath of Gath. Gol, meaning Goliath, and Gatha, Gath, that's the Arabic, but it's Gath, and Goliath was from a place called Gath. And that Golgotha is actually representing Goliath of Gath and that that severed head, the skull that he held, that he buried it in the ground at the place of the skull. He took the skull and he buried it in the place of the skull. Now, whether you can prove that or not, I don't know. But I'm saying, I just think if there's any, if there's any truth to that opinion, then I think it's just absolutely marvelous. Because what did it symbolize? David was saying, maybe by the unction of the Spirit, maybe not even knowing fully what he was doing. But what does it symbolize to us? David takes that head like a seed and he plants it in the ground. He buries it. And he said, he as a servant of Satan, a servant of darkness, has been defeated by me. And in this same place, many years from now, my seed, Jesus will overcome his boss. The servant of Satan was defeated by David, but the king himself was defeated by Jesus. And it's very possible that it was put at exactly that spot because it represented Goliath of Gath. And if if David had lost, Jesus wouldn't have been born because he came out of David's loins. So that, this is amazing because those fallen angels came in Genesis 6 to sleep with the daughters of men to make giants upon the earth, both before the flood and after the flood, if you read it, it's both times, which is why Goliath existed. Goliath's existence was to block Jesus' seed line. He was created by angelic and human seed. That's why he was almost 10 feet tall. Because he was there for one reason, to block Jesus. Or to kill the man who would have Jesus. Which is why that great battle in the Valley of Elah is far more than just a battle. It was the fight for Jesus' existence. And I'm telling you, he defeated the one that tried to stop Jesus. He takes his nasty, rotten skull and he plants it in the ground at the place of the skull. And it's called Golgotha, Goliath of Gath. And one day, the seed of David would come and he would stand right there where that skull is. And he would bleed his own blood right there. And Satan, the king of Golgotha, the king of Goliath would die. He would be defeated. I'm telling you something about it. Whether you can prove it or not, it'll preach. I hope it's true, brother. One of the questions I'm going to ask Jesus when I see him. Now, I'm going to close with this. Ephesians, see, nothing but victory. If that is true, Jesus probably would have known it. And he's hanging on that cross, looking at that skull. And that, you know, that escarpment that we saw. And saying, Goliath, you, you, you got burned here, buddy. Not here, but you, the memorial of your, of your defeat is here. And then the place where you were defeated, I'm going to defeat your boss. Oh, my God. God is so poetic. And nothing is by chance with him. One more time as I close, and this is a serious close now. This is not like previous closes, which have been partial lies. This is God's honest truth about it, Taylor. <laughs> And, uh, well, my Bible has frozen. Okay. Uh, see, the Lord is sign- giving me a sign. He doesn't want me to close. 
uh, Ephesians 4, verse 8, and it says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led a train of vanquished foes, led captivity as his, man, as his prisoner of war, and gave gifts. There is a, there is a, uh, a symbol here that you need to understand. Come on, what is up with my phone here? Sorry, everything's freezing on me. Is that you, Sandy? Sandy, is that you, sister? Is he, did you do this? Are you responsible for this? Okay. Uh, You've got to understand that there's three phrases. He ascended, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts. Why are these phrases so important, Greg, for our, for our spiritual edification? Because he ascended speaks of him completing his victory. Him leading captivity captive speaks of the robe which symbolized his utter and complete and total victory. So he completed the victory by ascending. He is now symbolizing or proclaiming his victory by leading captivity captive. And then what's the third part? And don't leave the third part out because it's just as important as the first two. We focus on the first two, but not the last. What's the next one? He gave gifts unto men. Why? He ascended to complete his victory. He led captivity captive to proclaim his victory. And then he gave gifts to teach you about his victory. He completed it. He proclaimed it. And then he sent Craig to teach you about it. Seriously. Because people don't get this on their own. It takes an office and an anointing to bring forth revelation. Anybody can get revelation at any time from God. But, but it comes, when it comes through an office under an anointing, it, there's a greater oomph to it. There's a greater impartation and gifting upon it to help you understand that the victory that he accomplished when he ascended, that he proclaimed and advertised when he led captivity. He wants you to understand it. So he says, I'm giving you. It's amazing to me, Greg. The very first thing that Jesus did after the procession. I mean, they're having joy, unspeakable and full of glory. And he goes back and he said, the first act of the king, other than the celebration, Sandy, the very first act is he breathes into the earth gifts. And he says, prophet, pastor, evangelist, teacher, apostle, go. My people must know this. My people must know what has happened here. They must know what happened down in hell. They must know what happened on the earth. And they must know what has happened in heaven. They must know what I've done. Go. Anointings and offices for human beings to stand in. Being painted, literally the anointing means to paint. Being painted by God himself. To say, speak with my words painted upon your words. And teach the world what I've done. That's how much he loves people, that he gives offices. That's why, and, and, I, and I don't need to say it to you because you, you do it, but that's why you got to receive, that's why you got to honor them. Because they are a gift, they're not a curse to you. Pastor Edwin talked about the Carax. I don't know if you remember that, but he talked about the Carax at, at Holy Ghost meetings in one of the mornings. The Carax were commoners selected by the king personally to represent the king to the common people. They would preach or proclaim to the people what the king's will was. This is in, this is in the dark ages. Like ministers, Karaks represent preachers. The king selected a Karak who was a regular person. Put him into his service and paid him. They paid him a very good wage. They were paid much more than regular people. And they were dressed in fine apparel. The king paid for their clothing. And the king said, now you're like them. You're common. You don't have royal blood. But on, I want you to go with my authority, with my pay. They can't fire you because they didn't hire you. And with my clothes on you, apparel, good apparel. 
I want you to go and I want you to talk, stand in the public squares and preach or proclaim to the people what I want. And the Kareks would come and everybody would know Errol who the Karak was because the Karak would be dressed a certain way. I'm telling you, there's a lot of nuggets. They could tell the Karak by his clothing. And then he'd start to say, I speak for the king. If they touched the, cleric, the Carrick, they would die because they, they represent the king. And they're like an ambassador, but they're a common folk. They're not royal. The king's royal. He's not. I represent the king. He wants me to speak to you today and tell you this is what he doesn't want. This is what he does want. You guys are doing this. He wants to change this, blah, blah, blah. You all got it. You better listen. I'm on my way to the next town. And that's what they would do. They were traveling proclaimers. And the Carrick is like the minister. We are regular people just like you. We're not special. But God himself has called us into his own employ. And he pays me. And because he hired me, you can't fire me. Because he hired me. He called me and he anointed me even though I'm a commoner just like you. I'm not special. I'm just like you. There's nothing good in me. I'm just like you. But he said, now you come. I'm going to pay you. And I want you to dress appropriately. That's why I'm telling you, I have a real issue with ministers preaching in Bermuda shorts because it does not, it does not show forth the king that you represent. If an airline pilot can get dressed up in a suit, why can't the preacher? Because the preacher's job is far more valuable than the airline pilot's. And if the airline pilot doesn't pay attention, you'll die. And if the preacher preaches the wrong thing, you can die. Because he preaches you, God puts things on you, teach you something to keep you humble, and you believe that, you'll die young. Worse, worse than an airplane crash. So the preacher has to look like the king, talk like the king, have authority and boldness like the king because you can't fire him. So he doesn't have to placate you or worry about your thoughts because you didn't hire him and you can't fire him. And he dresses better than the commoners to show I represent royalty, although I'm not royalty. And I speak with authority because you can't touch me. If you touch me, he'll execute you. And you can't fire me because he's the boss, not you. And I'm telling you what the king says. If I were you, I'd listen. And then he'd move on. Perfect, perfect parallel of a traveling minister. And we could also say the pastor, except this poor character here, don't get to move on. I tell you, and then you throw tomatoes at me, and I have to come back the next week. The other character's just, you know, Brother Jerry just moves right along to the next town. But this old boy here just has to stay right here, right put. Praise God. But I'm telling you, God hired me. You can't fire me. And God, God pays my bills. He does. Now, he'll do it through you and your tithing and your giving and your help and your love. But if you don't, he'll make it up another way. Because he will not let me go because he, he employed me. You didn't employ me. And that's why I can be bold because I'm not trying to placate you like the seeker sensitive. They're worried everybody's going to leave so they don't offend anybody so they don't tell them righteous living. But I can be bold because I'm not in, I don't, it doesn't bother me if you get offended or not because if you leave, God forbid. But if you do leave, God will replace you because all of us, including you and me, are all replaceable. We've got to do what God says. So I can be bold and I, and I need to be, look proper. I need to act proper. I can be a little bit, play the fool a little bit, but I'm trying. Greg's teaching me. I'm going through finishing classes with him. He's teaching me not to be, play the fool so much. But I may be a bit more of a humorous Carrick, but I'm still a Carrick. And my job is to preach to you. My job is to tell you what the king says. And these Easter services, I've told you why. Because the most important thing other than putting his blood, saving us, Errol, and then having a party to proclaim his victory over the devil, the very next thing he did is give you a pastor. 
because he said, I have overcome. I've proclaimed my overcoming, but now I've got to teach them my overcoming. If they don't learn it, they'll, they'll die young. They'll, the devil will beat their brains out. And I beat his brains out. And he should not beat their brains out because I took care of them. I need somebody to preach to them who's a commoner just like them. Praise God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. If you went on a desert island, not a desert, but an island, you know, one of those survival things, and there were bugs everywhere that could eat you, and there's no food around, and you're really nervous, and they give you an instructor, and they give you a book, and they say, now listen to that instructor, because he's all the stuff in this island is in that book, where the little stream is that's hidden, well, you're going to need to drink it, just listen to him, he'll tell you where it is. And then when this, where this minefield is, he'll tell you to avoid that. If you're smart... You would be real appreciative for the instructor. Yeah. And you would say, could you please talk to me from your little special book there so I know where the food is, where the water is, and where the snakes are so I don't go there? You'd be stupid if you say, ah, who do you think you are? I don't care about your stupid book and who you think you are. I'm going to be fine. As, as the snake bites you. We're in this earth. There are minefields everywhere. There is darkness everywhere. And he's given us a book. He's given us a book. And he's given you a Carrick instructor. And you've got the great Carrick inside you called the Holy Ghost. Amen. And he says now, I want you to listen to the instructor with the book because he'll tell you where the snake is. And he'll tell you where the hidden stream is to be refreshed. And he'll tell you where the food is. And don't go on your own like a little sheep wandering out there where the wolf can get you because you won't know what to do because the instruction in the book has to come through an instructor. A person with skin on as well as the Holy Ghost who lives inside of you. He works together. You can't get everything from me, but you get some things from me and the rest comes from the Holy Ghost who lives inside you. Praise God. So I want to encourage you tonight. There is nothing but victory when you look at Jesus. From the moment he went, from the time he's had that last early Seder meal on Wednesday night until the time he came Sunday night and got the first group born again. The Bible says it was night when he came. So from Wednesday night right through till Sunday night, look at what happened. We've gone in great depth and detail over four sermons uh, with virtually almost every detail. I mean, I left some things out, but I gave you 98% of what happened from the cross to the throne. And not just the throne, but the procession afterward, the party afterward. And then the first born again people after that on Sunday night in Jerusalem. There's nothing, nothing but absolute and utter victory with Jesus. Praise God. Now, I'm done, but I, the Lord said to me when I was praying this evening, he said, I want you to look at that camera and also for the people here, but he said, there's some people in the congregation, I know this in the natural anyway, but he spoke it to me, so I already knew it, but because Lorraine's been updating me on people and their situations, but he actually spoke it to me. He said, there are some people in the congregation that are getting sick and that are feeling down and that are feeling like there's just a, a lot of people in our church. All of a sudden, it's like we haven't had hardly anything. And then in this last two weeks, there's been like an explosion of people getting sick. I don't think many COVID cases, but just people getting flus, getting aches, vomiting, different things, not necessarily COVID, but they're just getting sick. And I just, I heard the Holy Ghost say, tell them those that are feeling like they're a little bit bombarded right at this moment, COVID or not, tell them, this is the Carrick telling you. The Bible says, and this is the verse he said, he said, quote them, resist the devil and he 
will flee. But how do you resist? Kenneth Hagin said he never got sick for 60-something years, right? But if you listen carefully, he would also say, there were many occasions where the symptoms would lay hold upon my body and I would feel as sick as a dog. But he said, I would stand my ground and I would say, no, you don't. I don't care how I feel. You're a lying symptom from hell. Jesus defeated you and I command you, get off my body. I said, get out of my chest. I said, get out of my sinus. I said, go from me. I said, go for And he would resist like that. And he said, one time it took three hours. That was the longest he ever had to resist. All the others were a matter of minutes. And he said, I mean, full-blown symptoms would come on him. Full-blown symptoms. Sometimes it was heart-related because of his, of his heart issue before he got healed. Other times it was just colds and flus and all these things. And he would resist it aggressively. Remember, the Bible says that the violent take it by force, not the, weak, not the weaklings. The violent take it by force. And he would violently resist it. And he said, every single time, every single time in 60 years, the symptoms would leave him. The longest they held on was three hours. But after three hours, they all disappeared. So what I'm saying to you is don't, don't, don't believe the lie of the devil because your symptoms come on you. And you got the aches and the chills and the fever and you got the cough and you go to the, oh no, oh no, I'm sick. Don't say that. Don't. It comes on me more than you know. But when I feel that thing, it's like, it's like a red flag to a bull. And I immediately start saying, it's not mine. I will not accept it. This is a lie from hell. This is a foreign entity trying to touch my body. This is my property. This is God's property. I forbid it on my property and on my body. Sinus, you hear me? I command you to be clear. Pain, you hear me? I command you to go. I reject you. I utterly reject you, Satan, because Jesus took it. And I'm not touching something that he paid for. Now I take my healing. It's mine. I take it now. And I do that until the symptoms. And I can tell you dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, literally hundreds of times that I felt sick as a dog. And, and, and within an hour, sometimes two hours, sometimes four hours, but it never lasts much longer than that. I'll keep standing. I'm like a bulldog. I'll kill you, devil. Don't you dare touch me. But you see, you see that, you see, that's called violence. Spiritual energy. Uh, white hot passion. It's, the, it's not just emotionalism, it's the spirit of faith. Where does it come from? Not up here. It comes from my spirit because I meditate and I feed on the word of faith. So then the spirit of faith comes out of me. And that symptom cannot stand against the spirit of faith. It backs down every time. Every single time. But if you don't resist like that, if you just, well, you're just going to be like the world. Jesus paid the heavy price, but you're not going to enjoy it. And you're just going to go through all the sickness like the world did. And because of your little bit of faith, you might get maybe better a day earlier than your coworker. Because healing power is working in you, but at a very small ebb. So you might have a little bit of of better, but you still more or less went 90% of what the sinner went through. Because you didn't resist unto death. You've got to resist unto blood. You've got to say, no, you, no, you don't. This is, not your, this is not your property, devil. This is God's property. I, re- I forbid you on my property. Get off my property. I'm telling you, it works. And I heard the Holy Ghost say, quote them that verse, resist the devil and he will flee. 
but you got to resist violently. So if you're feeling a little bit of something, 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 stop feeling bad for yourself. The thing that'll kill you is feeling sorry for yourself. People that feel sorry for themselves block the power of God. It's like turning the switch off. Don't ever, 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 ever feel sorry for yourself. Just start saying, Lord, I thank you. I reject it. I utterly reject it. And I take my healing. I take it now. It's mine. And you keep aggressively. If you have to do it all night, do it all night. But I'm tired. Well, then you just can stay sick then. If you don't have enough guts to push through when you're tired and resist, you don't deserve the healing. Dad Hagen would sometimes resist all night, Sandy. He'd go the whole night. And be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When he'd have heart symptoms. No, you don't, devil. No, you don't. And that thing would just leave him. But people today were drive through society. If you have to wait more than six minutes, now you want to call the manager and file a lawsuit because your McChicken's cold. It's ridiculous. The way people think in our society is absolutely asinine. There's no staying power. Sometimes you've got to fight a little bit and the devil will back down, but he's want to see, sometimes he's going to push you a little bit, see if you're going to quit. So get that spirit of faith stirred up within you. And every time you're feeling a little bit low, just close your eyes and picture Jesus on that cross and what he took for you. And then close your eyes again and picture him sprinkling blood for you. And then close your eyes and picture him again sitting on that throne with that robe. And then close your eyes and picture him dancing in the streets and all the angels celebrating that he's overcome York flu. And then open your mouth and begin to speak and agree with him. Praise God. Then I tell you, those things will leave you quick. And you'll have victory, and you'll never be sick again. I'm not going to be stupid and say I'll never be sick again. I'm confessing, but, you know, I'm human like you, but I do know how to get rid of it when it comes. And sometimes it takes a fight, Taylor, but that devil will leave. Father, I bless this people. I thank you, Jesus, that with you, there's nothing but victory. Victory on the cross, victory in hell, victory when you rose, victory when you put your blood Victory when you sat down on the throne with the robe. Victory when you walked the streets of the procession. Victory when you came back to earth and saw the disciples. Victory when you come back the second time and your long Galilean legs bust through that golden gate. Nothing but victory. Victory when your blood went into the ground where the skull of Goliath was. Where you defeated Satan. Nothing Nothing, nothing but victory. Lord Jesus, thank you for the great price you paid for victory. Thank you that we are endeavoring to the best of our knowledge to walk in it more and more as we're each on our journey. I don't judge anybody here. We're all on a journey. We're all at different levels of faith. I don't want them to feel bad because they're sick or feel bad because the symptoms stayed. We're all on a journey. Lord, if it took them out this time, then I just thank you that they'll build their faith and next time they'll stand a little stronger. But Lord Jesus, you paid a heavy price for victory and my job as the caric is to preach it so that the people know what's available to them. I give you praise for it and I give you honor. Thank you for what you've done in these four services. Thank you, Lord, for what you will continue to do in the services to come. Thank you for this church. Thank you for every person in this room. Thank you for their great hunger tonight. Thank you for the worship team and how much they helped the anointing tonight. Thank you, Lord, for everybody that watched. I love them and I bless them. I miss them. I can't wait till we're all in the building again together. That day will come. But until that day comes, we'll just be patient and it will all come to pass. I give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.